two weeks. If you remember, chapters 8 and 9 was about giving, about uh, really dying of self and giving to the work of the Lord uh, based on the resources that he has given you and directed you to actually give. And, uh, and, but here in chapters 10, 11, 12 especially, even 13, we are finding that Paul is going to make a shift and bring back a topic that he actually talked on in the beginning of 2 Corinthians, and even 1 Corinthians, as we saw, because as we go book by book, uh, chapter by chapter uh, teaching, you remember in our studies of 1 Corinthians in the first part of 2, that there was a challenge that was happening in the, the, the Corinthian church. In Corinth, what was happening was, after Paul started the church, he even warned the believers, be careful of what happens after I move on to start other churches or start and move on to different ministry. Be very careful because wolves are going to come in. False teachers are going to come in. There's going to be division, fractions that are going to take place within the church and be very careful that you do not allow that to happen. So with that context, this is what we're going to see in chapters 10, 11, and 12 is him addressing specifically those false teachers, those Judaizers that were following Paul around from ministry to ministry, going in and trying to subvert and trying to discredit and to tear down the work that God was doing through Paul in these Gentile churches, that, uh, in, in territories, and, and people were getting saved, the church was starting, and they were coming in, these Judaizers, and saying, that's great you love Jesus. It's great that you've put your trust in Jesus, but you also need to get circumcised. But you still need to follow the dietary rules. But we still have some traditions in our previous religious system that you must continue. And anytime you have someone who comes to you and says, you know, you're a Christian, yes, I love Jesus, but do you also... You're talking to someone who doesn't know the word or you're talking to a false teacher and you must be aware because you're saved by what? By faith alone in Christ alone. Period. And so you must understand as Paul is going to now address these false teachers, these false prophets, these wolves that were coming into the church, what was causing is they are allowing that, that mindset of allowing the world to come into the church. We studied, if you remember, the, the, the believers in, in, Corinthia, in Corinth was starting to allow cardinal fleshly thinking, worldly thinking to come into the church. And what was happening is with that worldly thinking, they started thinking we needed to entertain ourselves within the church. We needed to start having programs within the church. We needed to have things that look like the outside in the world to make and see how we can try to feel at home inside the church and live the same way. So we don't have to change much. And Paul had to address that through the letter. Here he specifically is going to highlight the spiritual warfare that takes place within a church. And that's what we're going to see over the next couple of chapters is spiritual warfare and the strongholds that can be built up, walls that can be built up even within the church. Because remember, this letter is written to believers in Corinth saying, you've got strongholds, you've got a mindset, you've got a philosophy that is, gonna, is causing problems within the church, and, you're, and, you're, and it seems like that is your understanding because you've allowed these false teachers and these wolves, these, these false prophecies, Judaizers, to come in and to sway you from God's truth. And so we'll see that here today as Paul addresses these believers. And so in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 1, he starts off by saying, Now I, Paul. So there's no question he's getting across to them. I, Paul, I'm, I'm going to talk to you here. Why? Because he was the leader of the church. 
He started the church. He has authority to speak based on who he is. He says, now I, Paul, myself, am pleading with you by the meekness and the gentleness of Christ, who is in presence and lowly among you, but being absent, I am bold towards you. So he starts off this part of the letter here and says to the believers there in Corinth, hey, I'm pleading with you. I love you too much not to be pleading with you. If I didn't love you, I'd just move on to the next place. I just completely forget you and, and, and say, it, it's your tough luck. It's your problem. Hey, I started it well. It's not my problem. It's your problem to have to deal with. No, no. person who is a leader of a church, a shepherd has a love for the people, and they will plead with them to have, take note of what the truth of God is and to make sure you understand that because they love for the people. But he pleads with them by meekness and gentleness of Christ. He doesn't come in here and, and lord over and bulldoze in and threaten and accuse and, to, and to, to come in with a whip and start whipping to get people to understand what he's trying to tell them here. But his approach is with meekness and gentleness of Christ. It's not the meekness and gentleness of Paul, but Paul become like his Savior, approach was with meekness and gentleness. See, in the next few chapters, Paul will get a little tough in the words. Paul doesn't, doesn't, doesn't sugarcoat things as we've gone through <laughs> First and Second Corinthians. He doesn't sugarcoat things. He makes it very clear. But they were accusing him of being something a little bit a wishy-washy. Paul, you're wishy-washy, and these false teachers were starting to plant doubts and, and plant um, little messages into the church. Well, you know, the pastor, you know, he's a little, little meek, a little weak, don't you think, when he comes to the church? He just seems lowly. He doesn't say much. He kind of slowly comes. It's not, there's no enthusiasm. There's no bold. There's no leadership qualities. You're supposed to take charge. Why doesn't he act like this? But then we think there's something wrong with Paul because, man, as we will see, they started questioning. But when he writes a letter, boy, he seems to be really bold now, doesn't he? Who is Paul? Is he the same person? Is he the same person in the church when he's outside the church? Is he one way here and acts so humble and so meek? Almost kind of weak? Is he a leader? Can we trust him? See, that's how doubts start getting planted by people, false teachers, false people who are fractionists, people who want to cause division within the church. They'll start just subtly talking leadership down. And he says here, I come with pleading with you with meekness and gentleness of Christ. See, Paul understood, and he was doing it exactly how his Savior modeled it and did it while he was on this earth. His model was Christ, Christ's meekness. We see that in Matthew eleven twenty nine, with a quiet strength of spirit that enabled Jesus to accept calmly the wrongs done against him. That's meekness, a quiet strength. When people are coming to tear you down, you don't have to boldly respond. You can just have a quiet strength and say, I know who I am and I know that I'm pleasing my Lord and I don't have to defend myself with false accusations. I don't have to come back and have butt heads with people who want to butt heads with me because they're trying to take authority or prove themselves in some position or take over in some situation. I don't have to butt heads with them. Because I know where my strength comes from. And I know who God has made me to do and to be. So you can have that meekness. Some people look at it as weakness. We have environments where we come out of, out of work environments that says, if you don't show this strength and boldness and you're not yelling and you're not demanding and commanding, then there's something wrong with you. It's a culture that we come out of in this world. 
But we don't go by what the culture teaches us or by the business or the organization we belong. We go based on a child of God. We go based on what God's word says, and that is their strength. There is a quality, a characteristic that we are to have, and that is meekness, a quiet strength that people won't even understand. Why you seem so calm in time of someone coming against you and attacking you. Why didn't you say something? I didn't need to say anything. God will take care of that for me. I will. If he gave me the words, I would have said something. But Paul is saying, I came in meekness and gentleness. See, Jesus spoke gently to sinners. He was trying to win them over to come. He gently, patiently, gently with sinners. But when it came to the religious leaders, we see in Matthew 23, he boldly confronted them. You den of vipers. He made it clear to those religious leaders who were playing games and, and having this pious mentality, and it was just causing people to actually walk away from a, actually a relationship with Jesus Christ and trying to lead them into a or, religious organization. And Paul said, I'm not going to have anything to do with that. And I will communicate that effectively with you. But when it came to him, when you attacked Paul, or when you attacked Jesus, they responded with meekness and gentleness. But when it came to attacking one of the people, one of the sheep, watch out. Paul came with vengeance. Jesus reacted with vengeance, a righteous anger to deal with those who were misleading the people. That is how we are to be. Come against me, not a problem. Come against you, it's a problem. You come against me, I'm okay with it. You come against my wife and my children, you better watch out. It's very simple. Because that is what the Lord did. You come against him, he took it. You come against his people, watch out. That's that meekness, that gentleness of Christ that he's talking about. I came to you lonely. I came to you lowly. I came to a position not with some tremendous power and authority. When I met with you personally, you believers in Corinth, I was just one of you. I was trying to have a relationship with you. They're not a, me and you. I'm up on some podium and you're down there. No, no, I'm right with you with the rest of the people. But yes, being absent and bold toward you because I only have so much time. I needed to clearly communicate what was going on that was destroying you and that church. And I'm not going to sugarcoat it because it was, lives were being hurt. Well, it continues here in verse 2. So, but I beg you that when I am absent... I may not be bold with that confidence by which I intend to be bold against some who think of us as if we walked according to the flesh. So he says, now he goes from pleading to, I beg you that when I come, because I'm coming, I'm coming to Corinth. I'm going to come down. I'm going to collect that, that, that relief fund so we can take it down to the Jewish believers. When I come, I beg you. That I, when I come down there, that you and I are going to be okay. You believers in, in Corinth, you and I are okay. You understand where I stand. You understand that I love you. You understand that I'm pouring my life into you. That we're going to be, we're jiggy, right? We're, we're okay when I get there. Because when I come down, I'm going to address boldly those false teachers. Those, those Judaizers. I'm coming and I'm boldly going to deal with them. But please make sure the majority of you in the church are right with me. Because I don't want to have to deal boldly with you like I do in the letters to deal with some of the sin that was going on in the church. So Paul is really graciously saying, I'm just letting you know, please get your heart right when I get there. Because this time I'm not coming lowly. I'm going to deal with some with, with boldly. And I'm not going to mess around when I do show up. Because they were spreading that Paul was something like 
some wishy-washy kind of leader that you don't really want to deal with and you can't trust him. And it's just, but it's a reminder that he's only going to boldly talk to some, which is a vocal minority, because there's always that seems to be just that little few that seems to cause the biggest ripple within a congregation. Just a couple, just a fraction. And we knew that this church in Corinth was having problems with fractions, and he dealt with those in the previous letter, in the uh, the letters. But Paul was saying, hey, get it right here. So verse 3, for though we walk in the flesh, we do not war against, uh, we do not war according uh, according to the flesh. See, Paul is saying, hey, I'm just like you. I have a body just like you. I have to deal with things just like you. I walk in the flesh just like you, but I do not war according to the flesh. I do not get into fleshly ways in my response and how I deal with things. I'm not going to get into the flesh because that's what God doesn't want us to do. And I'm not going to do it, he says. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, not fleshly, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds, one, walls that are built up. He's able to pull those down. Two, casting down arguments, arguments between the flesh to flesh, between people. He can cast those down. Even, 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 and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God and bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. These are probably more, some of the most powerful verses for you as a believer to memorize and to know and to understand when it comes to spiritual warfare. Because there's always a spiritual war raging within your mind and within the church body. That's what he's saying here. And he says here in these verses we see, yes, I come against you, and some of you in, who think and boldly are trying to cause some problems here. I'm going to come boldly deal with you. You think I'm dealing with in the flesh. You think I'm emotional. You think I'm wishy-washy. And you kind of all kinds of things to try to justify why you're permeating into the, into the body of Christ here and causing divisions to, so that they would not listen and receive from authority. I will deal with some of them. But he says here in these verse 3 through 5, he says, But understand, for though we walk in the flesh like you and I, we walk daily in our flesh. We do not war according to the flesh. So the very first spiritual warfare stronghold that we see that Paul is really quickly going to deal with is those who cast doubts and walks in cardinal flesh when it deals with dealing with people. He says he's going to teach us how to get rid of that stronghold. He says, if you do it in the flesh, those strong, those walls that have been built up between you are going to stay. It happens within a church. It happens within a, between a couple in a marriage. You deal with issues in your marriage in a fleshly way. You're going to have strongholds and walls that will build up that will be very difficult to tear down if you continue to do it in the fleshly way. But he says, for weapons of our warfare are not cardinal. But keep the the key word here, mighty in God. We use God's weapons of warfare. We do it God's way in dealing with the strongholds or the spiritual wars that take place within your head or within a body of believers. See, Paul... Paul will admit that he walks according to the flesh. He knows that he's flesh and blood. He's a human being. He's not some God. He's not perfect. He understands that. He understands that the Christians there all have a struggle that's within. But the real battle is in the spirit, not in the flesh. The problem we is, is we make a mistake of getting trapped in the flesh and war flesh against flesh. We allow ourselves to get into the mud and mud wrestle. Casting insults back and forth between people. 
And Satan knows if he can just get you to get into the flesh and cause you to respond with your, that, that tongue that is, uh, is not tameable without the Lord, he knows he can get you into the flesh. He knows that Satan knows he's won. And because the Corinthians, led by these false teachers, started judging Paul's ministry by an outward appearance of what he was doing or not doing and and how he was responding or not responding, they were evaluating him based on according to the flesh in verse 2, not according to the Spirit. See, the Judaizers, like some religious, great religious personalities that we see on TV and around in different ministries today, they've got tremendous personality. They've got this something about them, and they've got the oracle uh, skills that just, the words they use are just so powerful. They commend attention. They've got it down so perfectly. They practice so perfectly, even right down to the perfect smile to draw people in to listen to them because they're appealing to the flesh. But Paul says, I don't fight. I don't war in the flesh, the carnal way. But my weapons are spiritual that come from God. And what are they? The faith in God, the word of God, and prayer, and love. Right? He trusts his faith in God to give him the ability to do what he's called to do. He does it by using the word of God to do his speaking for him. And when he speaks the truth, speaks and and follows and and obedient to the truth of God, he does this by going to prayer and talking to God to bring down these strongholds that seem to be hindering the relationships between him and those who are accusing him. Prayer is the most powerful weapon that we have in regards to spiritual warfare. The challenge that you and I have is sometimes we think we're talking to God, but we actually are not talking to God. We are talking to ourselves. We spend more time rationalizing in our own heads of why we think and feel the way we feel and think versus going back to the Word of God and saying, what do you think, God? And then sitting there quietly waiting for your direction from your Heavenly Father to tell you what that is. And so our warfare against those who are in carnal that comes against you is not to butt heads with them, not to cast accusations and go around and spread things to try to divide and conquer and to justify your emotions, but you are to go to prayer, you are to go to the word of God, and you are needing to learn to love God and love others. And you do that by faith. Because there is no other way. The carnal weapons Paul reviews were not material weapons such as swords and spears, but the carnal weapons he announces here is the manipulation that people do within relationships, the deceit that they cast within relationships, the worldly ways that they bring into the relationships. That is carnal weapons. Oh, you're not going to let me do that? Oh, you don't think I I should... Oh, let me see how I can manipulate my way to get that to happen. How can I show so deceit so that I can then cause them problems and maybe they'll, they'll, they'll say uncle and tap out and let me do what I want to do. That's carnal ways. In Ephesians chapter 6, Paul lists the spiritual weapons and even some more detail for us. The belt of truth, the, breast, bless, the breastplate of righteousness, the shoes of the gospel, the, she, the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, and the sword of the spirit. He says, this is what we put on every day for going out to battle. Instead of the belt of truth, 
Those who are walking cardinally, walking in the flesh, they don't put the belt of truth on. They turn around and they, they, they fight with manipulation against someone. Instead of putting the, the breastplate of righteousness on, they fight back based on their status of who they are. Do you know who I am? Do you know what position I hold? Do you know what rank I carry? Instead of the shoes of the gospel, they fought with smooth words. I will, I will use my words in clever ways to get them to move the direction I want them to go. Instead of the shield of faith, they fought with the perception of power. Instead of the helmet of salvation, they fought with lording over authority. I'll control them with my authority. Instead of the sword of the spirit, they fought with human schemes and programs. See, Paul says, I don't do that. I, I use what God has given me to fight my spiritual battles. I don't do it man's way. I don't do it the world's way. Because it leads to destruction. And I love you way too much to get down into the mud with you. Jesus relied on spiritual weapons when he fought for our salvation. We see it in Philippians 2, verses 6 through 8. Who, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself no reputation taking the form of a bondservant and coming into the likeness of men and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. That's our examples, people. This kind of victory through humble obedience offended the Corinthian Christians because they saw this humbleness from Paul as weakness is not being a leader. Not being able to stand strong and take and represent us. But the carnal human way is to overpower people, to dominate people, to manipulate people, to overmaneuver people. But the spiritual is how Jesus showed us, and that is Jesus' way is to humble yourself, to die to yourself, and to let God show his resurrection power through you. There's no greater way than to allow God to bring his power through you to deal with the challenges that are facing you day by day. The Holy Spirit, God himself, lives inside you. Your father is the creator of the universe. Your God knows all things, sees all things, and he's all powerful. Why would you choose any weapon that was formed by man? Because no, no weapon formed by man will come against your God. Do you believe that? Paul believed it. Paul lived it. It wasn't just words. It was his actions. And regardless of that, he knew he stood solidly on the truth, on the rock. And even though people, even Christians coming against him, didn't sway him to continue to do what is right in the eyes of God. It didn't sway him. But it pulled down strongholds. It brought down wrong thinking, stinking thinking that was in the minds of people. Do you know that you literally can come and if you put on the armor of God, if you go to the word of God, you go to prayer, do you know that the strongholds, those things that seem to plague you in your mind day in and day out, and you sit there and say, God, help me get those out of my thoughts, out of my mind. I can't believe that 10 years ago that popped up in my head. I haven't thought in 10 years. How do you bring strongholds down in your life that seems to have a grip of you and keeping you in the flesh? 
by going and using the spiritual weapons that God gives you. That's how strongholds come down. That's how these wrong thoughts and perceptions and contradicting the truth and the knowledge of God and the nature of God, that is how you overcome the strongholds, is using his weapons. Can even overcome arguments between two people, disagreements, intense fellowships moments. Do you get and butt heads with your spouse? Or do you recognize the spiritual warfare that is facing you? And do you stay calm, meek, and gentle in your communications with the other person? Do you leave a situation, Paul says, here in Corinth, you have people butting heads coming against me. How do you want him to respond? but meekness and gentleness. Because if you love them, if you truly love them, your actions will follow in line with what you say. If you say you forgive them, but your actions are contrary to it, your words mean nothing. Your actions tell it louder and clearer than anything else. And so we must learn, as Paul is teaching these believers in Corinth, you must change. Because I'm coming. And I will boldly deal with those, those some that are not, have no desire to change. And I will deal with them. But praise God, strongholds can be pulled down in your life and in, even in the religious circles. We have hope if people will just follow God and do what he shows and be obedient to what he shows and be obedient to the word of God, you will see that things, if the strongholds that seem to have a grip, that drug, that alcohol, that pornography, will no longer have a stronghold in your life. You seem to have an unrepenting, unresolved uh, bitterness and envy and jealousy and all these junk that can come into our flesh when we walk in our flesh can be solved if you will choose to use the spiritual weapons that God has given you and not the flesh. And it will also exalt against those who feel they are above the knowledge of God. Those who think they know more than God. Do you see what the word of God says? Yes. Now you need to be obedient. No. I think I know what's best in my life. I'm going to go anyway. I'm going to do it anyway. I feel like this is the best way. I've, I've talked to God, and I really feel a peace inside me that really knows that this is really what, but it goes against the word of God. I know, I know that's what you think, that's what the word of God says, but I really believe that God really showing me, I, I, I feel like this is what's best for me and my family. But it goes against the word of God. I, no, I just think this is what God is showing me. I, I, God speaks to me. But it goes against the word of God, the knowledge of God. Oh, yeah. God is always right, and you're not. So anytime you find yourself thinking and acting and doing above the knowledge of God, you're always wrong. It's very simple. Then you just have to Submit to the authority of God's word. That's important. And then, of course, we saw at the very end of verse 6, what did we see there? I just lost my place here in a minute. Bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. To battle against this carnal way of thinking and doing, our thoughts must be brought captive and made obedient to Jesus. People say, I just don't, can't get over one. I, I, I can't control my mind. 
But God says in his word that you can bring every thought under captivity. There's a saying that early on in my walk that just held on to it because I used to have this junk of 20 plus years of fleshly living. It's hard to just get that purged. But someone said to me, Corey, you can't stop the birds from flying over your head. You just cannot let them nest in your hair. So you can't stop the thoughts coming. But you cannot allow it to spend time coming and landing and making a nest in the hair. That means you have a thought that comes into your head. You know it goes against the word of God. You know it's wrong. You don't want it in your head. You immediately sit there and say, God, help me. God is an awesome God. He reigns. And you start singing. Whatever it takes, get that thought out of your mind. Don't dwell on that thought. Because if you continue to ponder on that sin, ponder on that anger, ponder on that bitterness, ponder on that unforgiveness, ponder on that, re that relationship you just cannot get, what will happen is it will mature to the point where it gets worse. And it will play out. You want to be, you find yourself appeasing yourself or comforting yourself in your flesh using fleshly ways. And you start going, mm, I just need a drink. Get that thought under captivity because if you do not bring it under captivity immediately, you will eventually, opportunity will come and someone will present you, hey, I have an extra drink. And what do you do? Exactly what you don't want to do. Take the drink. You sit there and say, oh, I want to comfort myself. I'm going to go do pornography. And then you sit there and you allow that thought to come in your, in your mind too long. It will immediately bring you to opportunity and you'll find yourself in the darkest place and you wish you'd never been. And then you have guilt and shame and that's exactly what Satan wants to do to you. You're a child of God. He is not own you. He, God, you're in the palm of God's hand and no one's going to take you out. But boy, does Satan want to, to neuter you. To just cause you to be paralyzed so you have no effect on the kingdom of God and do anything that God wants you to do. And it starts with the thought. And after the thought, it matures to a plan. And then once you get a plan, it's only a matter of time. The opportunity will happen and you will do it. But you didn't have to. God says, I have given you the weapons, spiritual weapons to combat. And one of the things you must learn to do is to discipline yourself. And you must bring every thought under captivity. And it starts by crying out. We call it prayer. Crying out and say, God, help. And then allow the word of God to penetrate the mind and ponder on the word of God so that the other subject flees. Because darkness does not like light. You must practice. You must work out your salvation in those ways. Or you'll not see yourself grow and mature as a Christian. Paul's saying to these people, these Corinthian believers, you must bring the strongholds down. You've got to get the thinking. You've got to move it to the direction that it lines up with God's word. You cannot fellowship with people who think they're smarter than God and pumping things into your head. It's so difficult today compared to even back then. You can turn on a YouTube. You can watch a TV. You can watch a billboards. It's stuff is it's a plethora around you. Filling your mind with things that go contrary to the word of God. And you can't isolate yourself. Parents, you cannot isolate your children. You must teach them the spiritual weapons to fight against those things of the flesh. You must teach them the ways of God. You just sit there and put blinders on them and isolate them and say, oh, you can't go here, you can't go there, you can't go into the mall. You couldn't take your children anyway. They live in a bubble. You must teach them, just like you as an adult, you must learn the spiritual weapons to fight against 
the carnal flesh and the things of this world. Lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. That is the definition of worldliness. And you must teach your children how to battle God's way. And they will be successful in walking in God's way. And there is no other way. Amen? Ooh, I better get going. Verse 7. Oh, no, 6. And being ready to punish all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled. So Paul was ready to confront these Corinthian Christians and to pull down these strongholds among them if they would, if they would not do it themselves. He was ready as a leader to come in and to help. That's like a parent with a child. Child has a problem. He wants to hang around with a bad relationship. This girl is no Gouda. She is pure flesh, and he's this guy wants to walk with God. And this t- no. parent, get in there, deal with it, get that relation severed. Because if not, that boy's going down. You must deal with it. And Paul says, I'm going to deal with this. I'm going to get rid of these false teachers, these Judaizers who are causing problems in the church. I'm going to take them out. And I will do the same thing. As a pastor, if someone comes in and causes fractions and it causes dissent and causes, it goes against what Paul is talking about here, I will deal with it. And they'll be gone in a heartbeat without any question. Why? Because I love you guys way too much. I can take the beat. But I will not allow false teachers and those who cause dissent to cause harm to you. Not happen. That's why God put a shepherd over the sheep, to help protect the sheep. Verse 7, do you look at things according to the outward appearance? If anyone is convinced in himself that he is Christ, let him again consider this in himself, that just as he is Christ, even so we are Christ. So they had a problem in, in these believers. They are always doing what the world does and they always make a decision and opinion and, make, uh, and, and react based on outward appearances. See, we know historically, in historical writings, Paul was not the, good, the nicest looking guy to look at. Short, they say, bowed legs, I don't know, wearing, riding the camels way too much around the country. I don't know. But he had a long nose, crooked. Because of the blindness and because of things, that they say they might have had some weeping and some stuff and junk coming out of his eye. Whatever he looked like, it wasn't the best to look at. And they were using that against him within the church. Does he look like a leader to you? Is he like a Saul, big and tall and good looking? But Paul says, do you look at things according to the outward appearance? The way I look? The way the, 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 what you see in appearance on the outside? Is that what you judge things on? That's the second spiritual warfare stronghold, isn't it? Those who base their opinion on outward appearance. Paul's saying, that is your, one of your problems. You look on the outward appearance and by, out, and, and, and by this outward appearance versus taking a look at what the, in per, the, in, the inner person, the, who that person is on the inside. You say, I look weak. You say, I'm unimpressive. You don't fit the model of a leader. And Paul's saying, you're just going by the flesh. You're carnal. It is about the inner man, not the outward man. But they knew Paul. They just had people trying to bring in doubts within Paul's life, saying, oh, there's two Pauls. Are you sure that's who Paul is? I know he was here when you started the church, but now he may have changed. He's, he's living his own life. He's taking advantage of people. All kinds of... He says, look inside here. Who do you think it is? If, if He asks the question, if anyone is convinced in himself that he is, in, is Christ, that you're a child of, you know, a believer in Christ, let him again consider this in himself, that just as he is Christ, even so, we are Christ. I'm a believer. I haven't changed here. None of us want to be judged by our outward appearance. 
We want to, the people to see your heart, who, who you really truly are. In verse 8, he says, For even if I should boast somewhat more about our authority, which the Lord gave us for edification, for building up the, the believers in the church, and not for destruction, tearing down or tearing apart, I shall not be ashamed. He says, hey, I could come in and really boast up. I could really prove my authority within the church. I could stand here and give you my credentials. I can give you exactly what God said and what he did. Because God, the Lord himself, is the one that brought me into the position of authority here in this church. Man did not do that. Not some committee voted on it. It wasn't my resume that it would caused me to be the pastor of the church. But God had a calling on my life and raised me up. And Paul says, I went out and I met you right at your doorsteps, right in Corinth where no one else was willing to go. You as a Gentile and shared the gospel, the good news. That was God's doing. It wasn't man's doing. It wasn't my own doing. And he asked me, the Lord gave this to me, Paul says, for edification, to build up the church, to build you up, to encourage you in your walk. Not for your destruction. I'm not here to destroy you as a believer. Verse 9, lest I seem to terrify you by by letters. For his letters, they say, are weighty and powerful, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech is contemptible. Paul is saying, hey, you might get a little scared. Man, who is this guy writing these letters? These are really bold letters. This guy's really serious. But the Judaizers, these false teachers, like, well, yeah, he sounds pretty tough on paper, but when you see this guy, do you see how weak and meek he is? Do you see his hear his speech? Supposedly his speech was this high twangy and you know, not great to listen to. So there were why would you listen to Paul? Look what he looks like. Look how he behaves when he's in your presence. Listen to his voice. It doesn't have that manly, deep voice of authority, command voice. Why would you follow him? Why would you listen to him? See, that's how false teachers work. That's how those who try to bring fractions those are the subtleness that you will hear from them. Those things, I pray, will be alerts to you. Because it will cause problems. Even in verse 11, let such a person consider this. That what we are in word by letters, that strong letters, when we are absent, such we will also be indeed when we are present. So the third spiritual warfare stronghold that we see here, those who attack authority. You know there's something wrong when someone attacks the authority. Children, when you attack your parents' authority, there's something wrong in your life. Your heart's not right. When you start deliberately attacking people in authority, police, political leaders, yes, even pastors, just know that your heart is not right. You've got to get rid of the stronghold that's in your life. Because God raised to deal with and to understand that when he put people in a position of authority, regardless of what they look like, regardless of how they sound, if they're teaching the truth, they're doing what is right, they're doing it in love, they're seeking after the Lord to build you up, to edify you, then why would you go against that position of authority? Because the heart is not right. He continues in verse 12. For we dare not class 
ourselves or compare ourselves with those who commend themselves, but they measuring themselves by themselves and comparing themselves among themselves are not wise. So what was happening here is they, these false teachers, these these believers who were coming against authority and and spreading deceit and, and causing divisions and fractions and they wanted what they want and when they want it and they wanted control and all the things that come with these strongholds in people's lives. They, he says, we dare not classify ourselves or compare ourselves with those who command themselves. He says, the problem, one of the strongholds that you have, the four spiritual warfare stronghold is those who think more highly of themselves. When you think more highly of yourself, Paul says, it's going to cause problems. It's a stronghold in your life. You sit there and compare yourself with yourself. Hey, I'm looking pretty good here today. I think I've got it, boy. I, I'm. You start really thinking highly about yourself. Do you know who I am and my background and what my... Did you see my initials after my name? And they even compare themselves, not only with themselves, but among themselves and others. But remember, here's the challenge with this. Paul's saying, people flock together like-mindedness, right? They're like-minded, they flock together. It's only a matter of time. You can see how fractions happen or clicks happen, whatever term you want to use. Because you get to fellowship, you start talking, and all of a sudden you find people who are like you. It's only a matter of time. You test it. You throw a few nuggets out there, and you go, oh, they didn't like that. I won't talk to them anymore. I'll go find someone else. And you throw a little nugget. Oh, they bit onto it. Let's see how far I can bring them into my circle here. And Paul says, you compare yourselves among yourselves. Hey, we're doing pretty good. I, I think I'm doing good. Are you doing good? I'm doing good. You're doing good. And, you, and then you ask someone else, I'm doing good. How do you think? Of, Corey, I think you've got something in your life you probably need to be considering. Whoa, I'm not going to talk to you anymore. Let's go talk to someone who really will talk to me the way I want to be talked to, like love, and I'm really good. See, Paul says, you compare yourselves. You can talk to yourselves. You think you're just surrounding yourselves like-minded, so that, but it's causing problems. I, Paul says, I'm not going to do that. I'm comparing myself to Jesus Christ. He's my standard. You're not my standard. I'm not myself my standard. My standard is Jesus Christ. And what does the word of God say to that? And if I go contrary to the word of God, I am wrong and he is right. That's why Paul says, I'm not comparing. It's, it's a stronghold if you think more highly of yourself or you get around people who are like-minded and you don't want to be tested and, and, and be reminded that you are going against the word of God. So we need to stop measuring yourself by yourself. Stop comparing yourselves among your other people. We don't look for the outward appearance. We don't look in how they communicate. It's what they're communicating. Because if you do that, it's not wise, Paul says. It's foolishness. And 13, we, however, will not boast beyond measure, but within the limits of the sphere which God appointed us, a sphere which especially includes you. For we are not overextending ourselves as though our authority did not extend to you, for it was to you that we came with the gospel of, of Christ. Not boasting of things beyond measure, that is, in other men's labors, but having hope that as your faith in, is increased. We shall be greatly enlarged by you in, your, in our sphere to preach the gospel in the regions beyond you and not to boast in, any, in, in another man's sphere of accomplishment. So the fifth spiritual warfare stronghold we see Paul addressing is those who want control and taking advantage of others. That's a stronghold. He says, I'm not boasting that I have done anything more than what God's sphere or influence that he's allowed me to do. I'm sitting here, there's limits that God has put on me as Paul. I don't have authority from God to go out and just do anything I want to do. 
Paul says, I am staying within the limits of the sphere which God has appointed us. He's called me to go minister to the Gentiles. He's called me to go out and share the gospel of Christ in these areas. And I go where he directs me. Not the where I direct myself. I only do what God has called me to do within the sphere. There's a limitation that God places on us at the time. He says, for even we are not overextending ourselves. Like we, you know, we're not extending ourselves and overreaching and trying to help you in Corinth. I, God called me. You are part of my sphere. I am in a position of authority. He's called me to minister to you. He's, he's called me to go in and correct and rebuke and encourage the way I'm supposed to do as a pastor. So I'm not overreaching here in my letters to you and addressing these issues. I'm not boasting. I haven't gone into some other man's labors. I'm not going over into another town who started a church and then go into that church to then siphon off the work that that man has done. See, that's what happens today as well as back then. People wait until a church is established. Paul established a church in Corinth. Then these false teachers come right in after he leaves and starts trying to siphon off those weak sheep and those sheep to form their own church. It happens back then, and it still happens today. But Paul says, I don't go into someone other man's labor. I don't go in there and take advantage of what he's sweat and tears and prayer and, and, and years of work of, of cultivating and, and, and ministering to people and then come in to try to take from that man's work. I came in and started a new work. And I was encouraged by this because I knew right from the very beginning when we were in California, when God said, you are going to start a new work, I wasn't looking for another church to take over. I wasn't looking to see who had a mega church so I could come in and just go and, and put a shingle up two miles down the road and start siphoning people off in a church to get them into my church. God says, you are going to start a new work and it will be you and one other person, two by two going out, and that was Pastor Rich. So Kathleen and I and Heather, with Pastor Rich and his Heather, started on March 6, 2011. And I taught four of them. Because that is what God said, go and start a new work. Paul is saying, I didn't go in there and find another Calvary chapel and siphon off of them. I didn't go work off another man's labor. But Paul also sitting here saying, because of the challenges in the church here, it's really hindered him to go out and start and plant more churches. He says, when we get this all together, he says in verse 16, I want to go preach the gospel in the regions beyond you and not to boast in another man's sphere of accomplishment. I want to expand what God wants me to do when he wants me to do it. And then finally, verses 17, 18, but he who glories, let him glory in the Lord. Read that with me. But he who glories, let him glory in the Lord. For not he who commends himself is approved, but whom the Lord commends. You don't look at who man is praising himself, lifting himself up, commending himself. Look at me, look at me, look at my accomplishments, look at how many, you know, the things I've done. Do you see how big my church is compared to your church? How many books have you written compared to what I read? What seminary did you go versus you didn't go to a seminary? You know, no, no. You don't commend yourself and praise yourself. Remember, let him glory in the Lord because the Lord is who you want to lift you up. You want him to be the one that praises you. Not yourself. Anyone who wants to 
constantly seem to want to praise yourself and constantly trying to get the limelight or try to get a position so you can be the one that does this so people will know. No, that's a stronghold in your life. It's got to come down. Let you glory in the Lord and allow him to do the work. Paul quotes here in verse 17 out of Jeremiah. And I'll read Jeremiah here. It says, Thus says the Lord, Let not the wise man glory in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man glory in his might. Not let the rich man glory in his riches. But let him glories glory in this, that he understands and knows me. That I am the Lord exercising loving kindness, judgment, and righteousness in the earth. For in these I delight, says the Lord. Jeremiah chapter 9, verses 23 and 24. What do you glory in? Do you glory in your own accomplishments and the abilities that God has given you? Maybe your physical strength that God has given you? The blessing of financially that God has given you? The 12 children that he has given you? Like you had, like you can glory in any of that? But when you really understand that God has given you all that is good, it should cause you to glory who? The Lord. 